Well, hey guys, how you doing? Good. Beautiful day. Uh, and uh, before we get going, I, I wanted to throw in my own little shout out for the care team. Um, my wife and I, my, our kids, we just moved here uh, a few weeks ago. And within a day of moving in, we were just receiving like little notes and like a couple days in a row just had little, uh, hey, we see you and we're glad we're here. And uh, they gave us uh, a little gift card to Handel's Ice Cream Place. My daughter loved that. We didn't sleep that night, but that's great. It was awesome. We had a, we had a great time. Uh, and so uh, we're really grateful for the care team, just even personally. Uh, we've been in a series that we're closing up today where we've been doing this drive-by sweep through the book of Hebrews, asking ourselves this question, what does it look like to run the race that God has before us in the midst of hard times? We might not be in a hard time personally, but the scope of life includes hard times. And so we're learning what it looks like to follow Jesus, even when things are not all going according to plan. And so Pastor Todd has taken us through living with an anchor, living with a compass, living with a purpose. And now we're moving through to living with a plan. We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 5, verses 11 to 6, 12. So if you got your own Bible or device you want to pull it up on, I'm going to read the whole thing. You came to church, so you're going to hear some Bible, so buckle up. Fair warning, they gave me the hard passage. It's great. First sermon on staff, awesome. Give you the tricky passage. We're going to dive all into it, but um, I can't wait for God, what God has to say. I'll read right now, and then and I'll, I'll just bring us back in prayer after I read, just a time to, to center before the Lord, open up uh, our hearts, uh, metaphorically speaking, just to, to receive from God. So right now, I'll pray. You can follow along with me, uh, just listening or pull it up on your own if you like. Hebrews chapter 5, verses 11 through chapter 6, verse 12. This is what God's word has to say. Starting in verse 11 of chapter 5. About this, that's the priesthood of Jesus, that Jesus stands before us as our representative with God. About this, we have much to say. And it's hard to explain since you've become dull of hearing. He's about to get saucy here. So, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the basic principles of the word of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he's a child, but solid food is for the mature. For those of you who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings or baptism, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible in the case of those who, once they've been enlightened or tasted the heavenly gift and shared in the spirit and fallen away, to restore them again to repentance since they're crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up in contempt. For land that is drunk in the rain often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated and it receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it's worthless and near to being cursed and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel much, much more sure of better things things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you've shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. 
That's God's word for us this morning, written by a human writer in their own context and style and language, but inspired by God himself. And every time we open up God's word, he has something to say to us. So let's pray once more. Let's ask God that he would speak to us in an individual and fresh way. So would you guys pray with me? God, we ask that you would speak to us this morning. We thank you for the beautiful gift it is to gather as your family here on a Sunday, to hear from your word, to worship you, to love each other in Jesus' name. We pray right now as we open up your word, would you open up our hearts? Right now, we just prepare ourselves to receive from you. God, if there's anything that's holding us back, any fear, any unconfessed sin, something that we know is just lingering there, but we haven't dealt with you, God, we, right now, we just take a space to acknowledge it before you. And if there is anything right now, just in the freedom of knowing that God's grace covers you, I just invite you to name it before God. Lord, we thank you for your grace. We believe that the promises that you give us in your word are true, that if we confess our sins, you're faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and for cleanse us of all unrighteousness, that there's now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We thank you for that truth. Thank you that your spirit is with us. God, we pray that you would give us not just information in our heads right now, but transformation in our hearts. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, we live in a cultural moment torn in tension between two values. On the one hand, we love the idea of finding ourselves. I heard someone say once, someone told me that uh, New York is the place where people live if they want to make themselves. LA is the place where people live if they want to find themselves. I don't really know what that means exactly, but it sounded good, uh, and, and so I'm repeating it now. But we love the idea of finding ourselves. And by that, we usually mean that uh, we, we want to know what makes us unique. We want to be authentically ourselves, authentically our unique selves, and we want to pursue the things that live, that, that go in line with what makes us unique, those things that make us happy, and then to begin to do those things unapologetically. This is especially true uh, in a place like the South Bay where we've got so many options to choose from, so many ways to do and to be. We love the idea of finding ourselves. On the other hand, we love the idea, or at least we feel the pressure to better ourselves. Self-improvement content, books, podcasts, things like that, is an $11.6 billion industry, which for context is equivalent to the entire economic output of the NFL. We love the idea of bettering ourselves. I saw a tweet this last week that said this, I need to start being like the 405, constantly working on myself, no matter how inconvenient it is to everyone else, right? We just feel this, this push to better ourselves, which side note, by the way, in LA and just Southern California in general, if you want to bond with people you don't know, you just gripe about the 405 because we're all in this together and we bond over shared trauma and that's just what our lives are like. But the point is, we have these, two, these, these dual tensions or these, we're in tension between these dual values of wanting to find ourselves, be our unique, authentic self unapologetically, and on the other hand, feeling like we need to constantly better ourselves. And it might seem on the surface at least that the sweet spot between those two tensions is to find some sort of balance in the middle. But I think if you look deeper underneath the surface of both of those values in and of themselves, pursued as an end in and of themselves, both of them get, get us stuck. See, when it comes to the, our value of finding ourselves, at least in the way that we usually talk about it and usually live it out, 
it gets us stuck in some, in some ways that seem unexpected. See, God absolutely invites us to be our authentic self, who he made us to be and defined in him to, to now live that out. But what we usually mean when we talk about finding ourselves can basically be boiled down to distinguishing ourselves from other people. And when distinguishing ourselves from other people becomes an end in and of itself, we begin crafting an identity formed entirely on our performance. What makes me better or more unique or at least different from the people around me? And if you want to know where that gets us stuck, just think about what it's like to be in community and to strongly feel like you've got a strength that you bring to the table, but then to now all of a sudden have a good friend that has that same strength, same strength as you, except that they're better at it. And what does that do to our insides? See, this quest of finding ourselves by distinguishing ourselves from other people actually ends us leading into the sneaky path of a performance-based identity that can breed guilt and comparison and anxiousness and unhealthy perfectionism all in the name of trying to distinguish ourselves from others by finding ourselves. And when it comes to the pressure of bettering ourselves, bettering ourselves is clearly a good thing. We're going to talk today about this path of maturity, of becoming more and more mature in Jesus and isolating and, and identifying specific things that we need to, steps we need to take along the way can be a good thing if rightly understood. God calls us to a new life in Christ. But on its own, it tends not to result in the things that we think it will. If we think that just getting a new habit or forming a, a new rhythm of life or improving in some area of our life is going to calm all the junk inside of our soul, it will inevitably let us down. About six months ago, I, I came across an article uh, in, uh, the, uh, on 538. It's, it's, a, it's a website about politics and culture and sports and all kinds of different things. And, and one of the journalists there was writing about New Year's resolutions. And she was analyzing some of the psychology and the research about why New Year's resolutions tend not to stick. And here's what she said. It's from the journalist Maggie Kortz. She said this. Summarizing the research, she said, whether your resolution is to lose weight, stop smoking, or finally catch that roadrunner, which I guess is like a Looney Tunes reference, I don't know. Research suggests that whether you achieve the goal or not might not matter as much for our overall happiness as we like to think. She went on to summarize that even when we accomplish those, those goals or those, those uh, things that we identify to better ourselves, typically, and according to the research, it tends not to change anything about our internal life. It may be good. It might have been a wise decision to pursue it, but it tends to not change anything about our internal life. And this is why so many attempts at self-improvement, and to really hit the nail on the head for, for a community of people following Jesus, why so many attempts at religious obedience fail. We fixate on bettering ourselves. We try really hard. And for all of our effort, we don't feel that different, even if we succeed. It doesn't give us what we thought it would. And so we give up. And in the midst of this reality, in the midst of the tension we feel between finding ourselves and bettering ourselves, and the, the junk that it can produce when we pursue either of those things as an end in and of themselves, we have to come to God's word, even to a tricky passage like we are coming to this morning, and ask ourselves, what is the alternative that springs from life with Jesus? If pursuing finding ourselves and bettering ourselves as end in and, ends in and of themselves tend to get us stuck, what is the alternative that springs from life with Jesus? And the answer of the writer of Hebrews in this section of the book of Hebrews is simply this. 
in the midst of the tension we experience between our culture's value of finding ourselves on the one hand and bettering ourselves on the other, Jesus calls us into the urgent, life-giving adventure of maturing into our true selves in him. He invites us into the urgent, life-giving adventure of maturing into our true selves in him. Because here's what's going on in this passage. And like I said, it's notoriously tricky. They just like threw me to the lions on, on uh, this being my first sermon on staff here at the river. And we're not going to dive too deeply into some of the technicalities of the difficult parts of this passage. But just as an overview, here's kind of the consensus among our teaching team of what's happening in this passage. Uh, the writer is observing that the readers he's, uh, he's writing to are in this state of spiritual stagnation. They should be growing, they should be maturing, but he observes that they're not. And so he exhorts them to pursue maturity. And he says that it is gonna happen if God permits it to happen. He says, listen, you're gonna pursue maturity if God permits it to happen. And then he has this aside where he gives these examples of a, a person who for all appearances on the outside looks like they have this deep, vibrant relationship with Jesus, except that they fall away. And he uses that as an example to say, it's like a field that produces crops. A, a field that produces crops is a fruitful field. It's, it's a field that's truly fruitful. And then on the other hand, there is a field that doesn't produce crops and it's not truly fruitful. It, it, was, never, it, it was never working towards the purpose for which it was designed, which is to say in the analogy that it's possible to, by all appearances, look like you have a vibrant relationship with God, but if there's no fruit, if there's no maturity over the long haul, the whole scope of a life, it's probably evidence that it was like that field that didn't produce fruit. It, it was, there was no actual relationship with God to begin with. And so then the writer ends by confidently assuring his audience that that's not what I see in you. I see the hope of salvation in you, and so I'm hopeful that you are going to step towards maturity because that's what real faith looks like. That's what's going on in this passage. It's this, it's this picture and call to maturity with some action steps to get us there. And so as we ask ourselves what it looks like to mature, what it looks like to have a life-giving alternative in Jesus to the typical ways that we navigate these sort of things in our cultural moment, here's what the writer of Hebrews is going to show us. The writer of Hebrews gives us a call to maturity, a portrait of maturity, and the path toward maturity. And that's where we'll spend the rest of our time here. We'll, we'll look at this call to maturity. There's a portrait of maturity, what it even looks like, and this path towards maturity of actual steps that we're called to take as we pursue God. Beginning right away with our call to maturity. Here's what the writer of Hebrews says in 5, 12, and 14. It says, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, salty, you need someone to teach you, again, the basic principles of the word of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since they're a child, but solid food is for the mature. See, he observes that the people he's writing to are in the state of spiritual stagnation. They're not maturing the way that they ought to be maturing. And he gives them this urgent call to step into growth. And as you notice, the language is pointed. Like, the writer is not pulling any punches at all. There's no compliment sandwich. It's not like, hey, step into my office. There's some things we need to talk about. You're great. You're doing great. No, he skips all that, right? It's just, you should be maturing, but you're not. You should be, in his metaphor, you should be eating milk, but you're still drinking, so, uh, you should be eating solid food, but you're still drinking milk. And, um, and, and as we think about why the call is so urgent, you know, we read a passage like this, and you're just like, geez, Louise, I came to God's word. 
I was hoping to be refreshed, like I'm here at the beach, and all of a sudden it's like mature, you know? And like, whoa, what is going on here? But the analogy he uses helps us understand why the call is so urgent. This analogy of going from milk to solid food. Because think of the picture he's teasing out. Right now, imagine coming across, uh, you're walking along the beach, you're on the esplanade here, and and there's someone uh, sitting on a bench, a mother nursing a child on on a bench, and you come forward, and you're like, oh, this is a picture, it's this beautiful beautiful picture of motherhood, and you come around the corner, and it's a 12-year-old boy nursing from from his mother. I just ruined your Sunday, there you go, but that image, uh, you're welcome. Why, why does that ruin your Sunday? Why is that a terrifying image? Because all of us know at whatever age is appropriate for a child to be weaned, and I'm not going to step into the landmine field. I'm a young parent myself. I, we all have very strong opinions about parenting and feeding and weaning and all that stuff. I'm not going to go there. But at, at whatever point it is appropriate for a child to be weaned from nursing, we know it's earlier than 12, right? Like, we know that's creepy. And so the, the reason it's, it's urgent for us to step into maturity, the reason it's urgent for us to be intentional about maturity is because it's unhealthy to stagnate. It's unhealthy to not mature. It's a major red flag. It's as much of a red flag spiritually as to see a 12-year-old nursing would be in going from milk to solid food. And the point here is it's really important. There's the, the writer is not disparaging being at a stage of life with Jesus where spiritual milk is important and necessary. He doesn't shame them for having ever been dependent on spiritual milk. He doesn't shame them for having ever been new to life with Jesus and just exploring or having just given their life to Christ and kind of figuring out what all of it looks like. There's no shame uh, in the writer's tone from that at all. What he's saying is that's great if that's where you're at, But that's not where you're at, people I'm writing to. People I'm writing to, you should be taking intentional next steps, but I'm concerned that you're not. And so what we need to hear here for this call of maturity is wherever you're at in relationship to God, wherever you are in life with Jesus, the, the writer of Hebrews, the spirit of God calls us to take a next step. So if you, you're just exploring and you're just, I'm not sure what I believe about any of this. I'm curious because I saw a bunch of people on the beach or my friend dragged me here or the, I think the person I'm sitting next to is really cute, so I came with them. Whatever the case is, the call is to take the next step. If you've been li- living life with Jesus for a while, the call for you is to take the next step. If you've been living life with Jesus for a long time, the, time, the call for you is to take a next step. There's an urgent call for maturity, and it's important that we take it because healthy things grow. So it gives us this call for maturity. It also gives us a portrait of what maturity looks like. In Hebrews, uh, in Hebrews 6, 1, he, he begins to kind of unpack this, and, and, what, and, and the way he's summing this up is he's, he's not just calling us to maturity, He's showing us what it would look like for us to be, be in the process of maturity, not having arrived. Maturity is a lifelong process, just like physical maturity is a lifelong process. But he's giving us this portrait of what next steps begin to look like in a person's life. And what he, what he shows us is that it's a holistic involvement of all of our lives that Jesus wants to get involved in every area of lives, forming our character, forming our very personhood into the image of Christ, more like ourselves and more like Jesus at the same time. It's this portrait that involves our head, our heart, 
in our hands. He shows us what it, look, what it means in our heads in 6.1. He says, therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and faith towards God and of instruction about washings and the laying on of hands, the resurrection of dead and eternal judgment. He says, we're going to go on from these, these, these truths that are foundational to life with Jesus. And we're going to build on that foundation by digging deeper into who God is. And he's not saying that like, the, the things that he listed, which are kind of basic, basic principles of life with Jesus. He's not saying like that's junior varsity, but you need to like move up to varsity. He says that's the foundation. That's essential. That's never going away. There are ever, ever more important ways to dig into that stuff. But on top of that, learn who God is more and more. There's an element of knowing God in our heads, of knowing truth about God so that we can move closer to God. At this point, many of us chafe at this idea of maturity involving knowing more truth about God. We, we chafe at the idea of doctrine, to use the big bad word that many of us are terrified of. And some of us are suspicious of the way that truth claims about God have been used by some to control uh, or even abuse in some communities. Some of us are concerned about the, the way that doctrine and truth claims about God can create a culture of exclusion and judgmentalism. And even if those aren't particular concerns for us, many of us just were not particularly interested in the idea of doctrine or truth claims because we just find it unappealing because it just seems unpractical and unrelational. And first, we just need to say that it's right to be concerned about the ways that truth claims about God have been used in ugly and destructive ways. It's right to be concerned about that. We need to acknowledge the brokenness that has come in different communities when people have used truth about God to control or to abuse or to exclude people who they deem as not the right sort of person. And in fact, Jesus beats us to the point on this. His harshest critique were for self-righteous, hypocritical religious leaders who used truth from God's word not to point people towards God, but to consolidate their own power. And we need to meet Jesus in that critique and recognize that truth is not meant to be used as, uh, as a, a club to get people in line. It's not meant to be used to exclude. It's meant for something else. And Jesus actually takes us there. But secondly, though, we also need to see that learning truth about God ends up being more relational, not less relational. Imagine if I came up and I told you, gosh, I love my wife. And then I listed a bunch of character qualities about her that are like obviously not true, right? Like my wife's blonde. What if I was like, I love my wife. She has the most beautiful brunette hair. You'd be like, duh, okay, cool. Like you wouldn't be celebrating my affection for her. You'd be recommending that we go to couples therapy immediately because here's the principle that we have to see. Authentic affection for someone is always fueled by true knowledge of someone. Authentic affection for someone is always fueled by true knowledge of someone. And that's what we're talking about here. We're to love God with our heads. We're to know who he is because knowing who he is fuels real affection for him. We're to be mature in our heads, but also we're to mature in our hearts. Hebrews 5.14 says, but solid food is for the mature, and here's how he defines maturity. For, the, for mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish from good from evil. See, what we see here is a portrait of a person 
who not, doesn't just know truth in their heads, but has internalized who God is in their hearts. And because they've internalized who God is in their hearts, their powers of discernment have been trained through practice. That it's not just in their head, but it's in their heart. It's in their very character. They've internalized life-giving truth about God, and it shapes the way that they view the world. It's in their heart. Maturity is, yes, starting with knowledge, who God is, knowing his ways, but it's to be internalized in our hearts. It's to shape our very character. It's to shape our inner life. And so maturity is head and heart. And finally, it's hands. He tells them, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, in verse 12. So he's saying this product of maturity that, that, that is natural of life with Jesus, it's an intentional process, he says, you should be teachers. There should be something happening in your life that you're pouring out into others, which is to say, you should be doing something with your hands, with what you do, the way that you act, and the way that you live in the world. There's a mission to live for, to not only have a, a, a personal relationship with God, but to invite other people into knowing this God who brings life and redemption in the midst of a broken world. The God who loves us and died for us and made a way to be reconciled to him in Jesus. That, that this doesn't mean that we need to, everyone needs to be a Bible nerd, a Bible expert, able to just go through all the deep dives of scripture, but that at, at the personal level, at least, we should be investing our lives in other people such that they come to know the amazing, redeeming love of God that we've experienced if we're those who follow Jesus. There's a mission to live for. And so, and so maturity here means to know God in our heads and to internalize life-giving truth in our hearts and to live with a mission with our hands that has eternal significance. It's this portrait of life that maturity is this whole self-involvement with God. It's, it's the kind of life that we long for in our hearts, even if we couldn't put our finger on it. Knowing God personally, having character formed to be who we were always meant to be, living with a mission in the world. So that we see that maturity is not just urgent, it's actually good and life-giving. It's growing from an infant to a child to an adult. All those stages are good stages. It's good for a person to grow up. It's good for a person to go from potential to now being fully realized as the person they were always meant to be and now defined in Jesus. We're going from uh, newness of life with Jesus to growing more and more in fullness of knowing him more deeply and becoming the kind of people we were made to be from the inside out and living with a mission in the world so that we bring redemption and life to the world around us. It's a portrait of maturity. And it's a good portrait of maturity. It's a good, life-giving kind of life, not this externally imposed set of rules that we have to live up to or pressure to better ourselves in some little way, but to flourish and grow and to become the kind of people that we are always made to be in God. So the question becomes, how do we get there? If it's urgent and it's good that we mature, how do we mature? What does the next step even look like? And the author of Hebrews shows us at the, at the end of our passage here in Hebrews 6, 11 to 12, and, and here's where we'll close. There's a path of maturity. He says that we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you might not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So what's the path to maturity? He says, show the same earnestness. The path to maturity 
is not just found in a strategy. It's not just found in a program or a set of classes or something like that, though all those things can very, very, very much help. But the root of it, he says, is earnestness, a sincere, heartfelt desire to grow deeper and deeper and deeper with the God who made you and loves you and gave himself for you on the cross. It's earnestness. Maturity will come when we earnestly desire maturity, which is to say, when we earnestly desire to be closer to God. The question there, though, is, what actually produces earnestness? I mean, the problem to begin with here for these people is that they weren't feeling earnestness. The passage actually opens by saying, I've got some stuff I want to explain to you. This is Taylor paraphrase, not the actual words of the writer. But I got some stuff I want to explain to you, but it's really hard to explain it to you because you've stopped listening. That's essentially what he says. And so the problem, because you've stopped listening, that's, that's the issue. Uh, that's a heart problem. That's not a strategy problem. That's not a habits problem. That's a heart issue. You, you stopped listening from the heart. And so if that's the issue, if the issue is in the heart, then what can actually bring us toward, to from the heart earnestly desiring more closeness with God? And that seems like an insurmountable problem to change the way that I desire God from my heart. I'm not a light switch. I can't just turn that on. How does that even happen? Well, it all comes from what the, the writer of Hebrews is talking about in the context in the first place. Because the writer of Hebrews up to this point has been showing us about how Jesus himself, the Son of God, the one who was the creator of the universe, seated at the right hand of God the Father, entered into the human experience, became one of us. Like the Hebrew says, be, though he was higher than the angels, for, the, for a little while he was made lower than the angels. He was made like his brothers and sisters, you and I. He entered into the human experience. And like the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 4, he was tempted in all the ways that we're tempted, yet without sin. And then he went to the cross, carrying your sin and my sin on his own back, taking in the penalty and the consequences of all the brokenness and all the ways that we failed to be who we were made to be in God and all the mess we've made of the world and absorbing it into himself that we might receive what he has intimacy with the Father, closeness with God, freedom from guilt and shame before God and before ourselves. And then he rose in victory over sin and death to bring us new life. And in short, what brings us from earnestness is seeing with fresh eyes the beauty of the good news of Jesus. This is what motivated the great writers of Scripture towards closeness with God, even in the midst of hard times. Apostle Paul says in Philippians 3.12, he says this. He's talking about this path of maturity, and he says, not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. I earnestly seek it. Here's why. Because, he says, Christ Jesus has made me his own. He pursues maturity, not because he sees this well-thought-out strategy, not because... He's, he's in the, the exact right Bible study, although that's great. He pursues maturity because he knows that Christ Jesus has already made him his own. When we see everything that God has done for us in Jesus, when we see the self-giving love of God for us in Christ, it changes everything. 
it makes us realize that there's no better place to be than at the feet of a God who loves us like that. There's no one better to trust our lives with, not even ourselves, than a God who loves us like that. There's no one in whom I would more desire to be identified with that I would want to find myself in than a God who loves me like that. There's no one who I want to define how I should live my life and what maturity looks like and what next step I need to take more than a God who loves me like that. When we see Jesus, it changes everything. It produces the earnestness that produces maturity. I love the way that the, the counselors, the Christian counselors, Richard Plass and James Cofield put it. They put it like this. Is not this the invitation of the gospel? We can own up to who we really are in the presence of God, who loves us beyond measure. We can repent and surrender our false self-strategies to the one who lived, died, was raised, and ascended to heaven. And as we do, both initially and daily, the interpretation of our story changes. When our interpretation changes, so does our very identity. When we see who Jesus is, when we come to experience the self-giving love of God in Christ, it changes everything. And so right now, we have time to do business with God. We're going to close up here in a little bit, but before we do, we have an invitation to come before God and take stock of our lives and to ask, Lord, what would you call me to do? What next step do you call me to take on? Maybe you're not a follower of Jesus yet. You wouldn't consider yourself a Christian. You're just here because you're curious. Or maybe you're kind of like, I grew up a Christian, but I've got questions, and I'm not really sure if, I, if I'm buying any of this stuff. And this next step is to, is to ask God, come before God and say, Lord, what next step do you want me to take in pursuing knowing you? And asking sincere and honest questions. To, to bringing the full, the full weight of what I'm wrestling with that, doesn't make sense or that I don't quite agree with or that I don't have questions answered yet to bring that before God. What does that look like? Maybe you know Jesus for a while and it's what next step of maturity does he want you to take? What life and community does he want you to take? What consistency in your walk with the Lord is he calling you to take? Grounded groups are a great place to work all this out. We've talked about this for the last couple weeks. Uh, you can find out more information. You can email info at, at riversouthbay.org or you can go to, to one of the uh, tables near the, uh, the entrance coming off the beach here on your way out to get more info. But these are just groups of people living life together, figuring out what life with Jesus looks like, and it's a great place to begin that next step. But whatever your next step is, we have some time to take stock with God and step into it. Right now, I'm going to lead us in a time of reflection as the worship band comes up and just plays a little music behind us. We'll close with some, with some worship through singing. But would you guys right now just bow your heads, close your eyes, or look out at the ocean, whatever's comfortable and natural for you. We're just going to come before God with open hands to lead us to the next step, all while looking towards Jesus. Because when we see Jesus, it changes everything. Would you guys pray with me? Lord, we love you. And we're so grateful for your grace. We're grateful for everything that you are for us in Christ. Grateful that in Jesus we see the self-giving love of God that changes everything. Right now I pray that you'd give us each fresh eyes to see it. And even if it doesn't feel all the way there yet, that earnestness that the writer of Hebrews calls us to, even if we don't feel that right now, would we keep looking to Jesus? And Spirit, we pray that you would produce in us an earnestness, 
Would you help us to keep pursuing you so that over the long haul, over time, we, we feel the earnestness that we're called to? Even if we don't feel it now, God, would you fill us with just the patience to keep pursuing you, to keep looking at Jesus? And would you produce maturity in us in the process? Lord, right now, we give you space to speak. What next step would you be calling us to? Lord, is there a, a question we need to ask to a wise friend or, or maybe someone from the church and we need to, to seek it out? God, is there a sin that we need to lay aside? Are there new rhythms or habits of life or something more consistent that we need to pursue? Whatever it is, Lord, I pray that you'd step into us. Move us to step into it. That we become the kind of people you call us to be from our head and our heart and our hands. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
Sin run. 
beautiful um so we're gonna we're gonna end off our service with communion with a chance to tangibly remember what taylor was talking about the basis of maturity is not a fear of is god gonna flick me off the planet and out of his love or not it's the safety of knowing i am loved by god that is not changing and now i am free to grow and to take those next steps and to continue the adventure with him. And so uh, we're just going to, the song, music will be playing. The way we do communion here right now, post, well, post-COVID. I'd love to say post-COVID, sort of post-COVID. We have these little wafer, like, juice shots here, okay? They're like little shot of juice and a little wafer on top. Wafer's not very tasty, but it's what we got. So what you do is you tear open the top, you get the wafer. That's the bread. And what that represents is the body of Christ given for us. God came to earth, took on flesh, and gave himself up that we might be able to stand with the security of knowing we're beloved and that won't change. And the, the grape juice represents his blood poured out for us that we might be able to stand and say we are cleansed in him and we are free to be his children. So here's how we do it. The music's going to play. And you can, as you would like, just kind of mosey on up to the communion table. 
and uh, take one, and you can pray, pray in groups, or just take it. And then we just close kind of like, we just sort of flow into the close. There's no strong close. This is how we close. So, Taylor, thank you for bringing the word of God this morning. Thank you so much. You are a gift to this community. And I, I'm just so thankful that God is using you so powerfully already here. So thank you. And Rachel and Troy. So let's end with the table and hang out after. It's a beautiful day. God bless you.